The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. This is Good Heavens, a podcast exploring the wonders of God's heavenly creation. Light. What is it exactly? It is all around us, but it is peculiarly hard to describe. It is also arguably the most foundational form of energy found throughout the entire universe. Without light, there is no astronomy. There are no stars or planets or galaxies to discover with our telescopes. There is literally nothing to see without light. Paradoxically, light as described by the most brilliant minds in physics today seems to be at once both a wave-like entity and a particle-like entity. But how can this be? Physicists still aren't exactly sure. In Genesis, God says, let there be light, and there was light. But what was this light that existed before the sun, moon, and stars were created on day four? An argument can be made that it was the light of God himself, as the Bible says that God is light. As 1 John tells us, quote, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. End quote. God is light. His presence radiates both a physical and a spiritual light. God creates light-bearing heavenly bodies on day four, but also confronts the Pharisee Saul with blinding light on the road to Damascus. God's light illuminates our darkness, whether it is the sun rejoicing to run its course in the daytime, or the moon and the stars guiding us by night, or God's spiritual light illuminating our pilgrimage to the darkness of this world. Quote, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path, end quote. The psalmist proclaims, In Psalm 19, God's laws and ordinances are compared to the all-pervasive and powerful light of the sun. Our home star, by the way, is over 864,000 miles in diameter. You could string 109 Earths across its midsection, end to end. Jesus tells us in John 8:12 that he is the light of the world, not a light of the world, but the light of the world. It is the light of the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which stands behind and beyond the light of this world, governing the universe and our lives within it according to his sovereign and majestic will. I recently had a visit to the dentist to have an old filling fixed, and as I was tightly gripping the armrests of the dental chair, not a little concerned about the whirring of the dental drill on my dilapidated tooth, I looked up at the overhead light the dentist was using to illuminate his proceedings. Almost immediately, the light reminded me of God's care for me, as God was overseeing the entire procedure, bringing everything to pass according to his will. I was ultimately in his care. 
That quick thought enabled me to relax my grip on the chair a little bit, and eventually all worked out quite nicely. But oh, how I often squirm and fuss and complain when things are not going well. Despite all my theological knowledge, a trial, suffering, and unfortunate circumstance, all conspire to make me forget the lessons and the mercies that God has shown me in the past. I'm often very tempted to think that God no longer cares. Perhaps you too can relate. Our lives are in a long, slow, continual process of turning from darkness to light, in which we grow to see Jesus' mercies more and more each day. On part two of our conversation about the book of Job, Wayne and I continue to discuss the difficulties of suffering and how contemplating what God has done and continues to do in creation can be a balm to our pain. We pray our little conversation can point you toward the light of hope that we have in Christ. There are some of us who believe in God and some of us who don't on the earth, right? And uh, what should demonstrate uh, that we really have a relationship with the real God? I don't think there's anything you could point to better than how we deal with suffering. Yeah. It should be, it should be a clue that we have a relationship with God if we deal with it well. That doesn't mean that that doesn't mean we don't suffer. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean that we wish it didn't end. Right. Uh, there's always things you wish would end. Uh, you know. But um, if we if we can keep our focus right, this should show that God is really there in our life. Well, it, it, it is. It's it's what Jesus said of the man born blind, and it's what we see through Job's perseverance um, that God is glorified. And that is, um, you know, it's easy to say I want to glorify God with my life when everything is going wonderful, but I'm, I don't – I wasn't pleased with some of the thoughts that I had the last couple of weeks about my situation. Um, it was uh, It was difficult. I mean, in the bigger picture of things – it wasn't that bad, but um, I was frustrated. I didn't instantly assume I was going to get a another car, or I didn't know when I was getting home. Maybe God was sticking me in Colorado to live there. I, you know, I had all kinds of thoughts, and I was frustrated, and I couldn't get home right away. And um, right, but then I There's went a- to the I went to the prayer meeting uh, with my friends on that Wednesday night, and I'm like, oh yeah, David is missing. Um, okay, Dan, um, you know, you <laughs> shape up, right? You know, just realize that uh, for everything that we go through, there are people that are in uh, more difficult situations. And um, Yes. So, and uh, this all kinds of questioning that you go through when you're going through hard things, and Job did as well, and you read a lot of that in the book of Job. And uh, he seemed to... Uh, feel like his friends didn't really understand or believe him about what he was saying. And one of the things when you're going through suffering is you just wish someone would listen and uh, believe you. Right. Uh, It's an interesting story I learned when I was reading C.S. Lewis for graduate school. 
there were two Lewises, and I, I resonate with this. There was the Lewis who wrote Problem of Pain, which was an academic sort of clinical assessment of, of you know, what's, what's the biblical response to, to suffering and pain? Why do we have pain and all this? That was a very analytical essay. I mean, it was very insightful, and there's nothing particularly wrong with it. But uh, Lewis himself, uh, he was married later in life uh, to a, a, a Jewish woman who later converted to Christianity. Her name was Joy Davidman. And uh, he had uh, originally married Joyce so she could become a, a citizen of uh, the UK. And and there wasn't any affection involved. But then later, Lewis took it seriously and they fell in love. And then Joy got cancer. And then she died. Um, and Lewis wrote afterwards, A Grief Observed, which is basically Lewis not analytically trying to see through the eyes of pain, but writing very in a very raw and honest fashion about someone who was actually going through the pain and suffering. And I, I, you know, it's two different, two different voices. It was so raw and intense that Lewis originally published it uh, anonymously um, because of the, the raw emotions, the questioning, the, the doubts and things that, that arose from Joy's suffering uh, and what Lewis went through. But there's, there's two ways to look at it. You know, you can sit here in the comfort of your own home and talk about suffering in a, theological or philosophical way and then uh, there's the kind of suffering that you you go through i remember the <laughs> a minute after i'd hit the deer and i saw the front end of my car i'm just like lord it's five o'clock in the morning i'm in the middle of nowhere colorado what are you doing <laughs> what happened why <laughs> why did you do this you know and i wasn't angry i was just i just like well what am i going to do now you know um but uh God's continual message to me that week in Colorado was just shh, you know, like a like I'm I'm like some five year old who thinks he's uh, running the household, and Dad comes along and gives me a reminder that he's he's paying the bills, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, but I think that that's true for all of us. We can analyze suffering, and there's a there's a point for each. You know, you there's a time for everything, as Ecclesiastes says. Um, there's a time for thinking soberly about suffering and then there's a time that we just we go through and um we we uh we just suffer through things and and sometimes the words aren't going to come at all or come easy you know and so enough yeah and um i think it's interesting dan in the book of job job's friends when they first came to see him at first it says they came to comfort him and they apparently just sat with them for several days. I don't remember how many days. But they just sat there and, and they didn't say anything for a long time. They were just sitting there with him. And uh, that was probably the best thing they did. The wisest thing that they did <laughs> yes. in the entire and then book. <laughs> after a while, they start to talking, you know. And then and yeah. they, at the end of the book, it's like what you read that uh, – God was not happy with what his friend said. And uh, mm-hmm. so um, it became more philosophical. But Morris kind of makes the point in his book that <clears throat> Job's friends end up being uh, thinking of themselves as the righteous ones and and thinking that Job had to must have sinned in some way. Mm. And that's where they were wrong. Um. Yeah, right. they all got stuck on this. That there must be something Job did wrong. Right. Right. 
Right. Well, it's interesting too, Wayne, because in the beginning of the book, and and Dr. Moore says this, and I, I highlighted it, and I thought I had been in this discussion before with somebody else. I was actually a skeptic friend of mine a couple of years ago. Where did this meeting between Satan – I think this is important. It's not just an esoteric aside, but where did this meeting between God and Satan take place? All we read is, now there was a day when the sons of men or the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord and Satan came among them. Now, I'm thinking – this is just my thought. I, I think maybe there's some biblical warrant for it, but I don't know. Please uh, please look into it for yourselves, uh, good listeners. <laughs> don't take my word for it. But um, Satan got thrown out of heaven, and uh, apparently he was on the ground here on earth right from the beginning, that the story that we see in Revelation was probably something that took place just shortly before the creation of Adam and Eve, that Satan was already thrown down from heaven, yes. from, from the war in, in his rebellion. I don't think, Wayne, I could be wrong, but I don't think that Satan has a free pass to come up into heaven and to go down back to earth as he pleases. I, I don't think he goes up there occasionally, see what's going on, reports to the Lord and comes back down. What I think, and, and tell me what you think, I think this meeting was something like what you saw in Genesis when the the Lord and the angel and the angels came to visit Abraham and Sarah in their tent. They were on earth. God was here on earth. Satan didn't go up into heaven, but God was down here on earth having this council, or however he did this, because when he goes to visit Abram and Sarah, he takes two angels with him. And so and then we know that angelic beings come down here, like in the birth of Jesus. The angels announce to the shepherds that, that Jesus is born. So I think it's entirely reasonable to conclude that this meeting that we have was an earthly one. Now, why, do, well, why does this— Yeah, but I think that's possible, Dan. But I think uh, it could also happen without being visible in any way. I mean, sure, sure. Here's, here's the point. Here's why I think—here's why I'm attracted to the idea that this was on earth. Now— yeah, you're right. I mean, it 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 doesn't have to have a place per se. Uh, it doesn't say that in the well land of, in the three three dimensions we are familiar with. It doesn't have to have a place. <laughs> right, right. It, there are other dimensions. I would say probably sure. uh, Ephesians six with the the <clears throat> principalities and powers of the air. But here's here's why I think um, this play that this maybe took place on Earth because right off the bat, if this is on Earth, what you have is Emmanuel, God with us. Because in the end of the book, he doesn't take Job, Job up into heaven. He comes down in a whirlwind to Job. And I think it's a very terrestrial, I think, I mean, I'm just speculating, but I think that uh, God being here on earth is God with us. God becomes Job's, uh, God is Job's defender from the beginning. God, yes. you know, well, and... You know, uh, Satan um, was tempting Jesus when he w- went off in the wilderness before right. he started his ministry. Right. And uh, maybe that wasn't the first time that Satan had talked to Probably to not. Look, I've got you in my hands now, and uh, I'm going to do these things with you that I've always wanted to do. So in the book of Job, Satan comes before the Lord, and, and the Lord is completely and sovereignly in charge over Satan. I mean, he is all the time. But then in 
Matthew 4, Satan has his way with with Jesus. I mean, ultimately, uh, God doesn't use a man like Job to have Satan threshed. God himself, in the person of his son, subjects himself to the temptations of the enemy, which is a remarkable thing. Um, God kind of steps down from his council seat and uh, becomes one of us and becomes our mediator and uh, prays for us and you know uh, where where is it in job i think it's was it job 911 i know that my redeemer liveth live liveth um I oh that's, that's one of my favorite passages i was wanting to read that dan yeah go ahead and read it since i just brought it up give me just a second here okay this is job 19 job 19 uh, i knew there was a 9 and involved. it's i'm going to read starting with verse 23 yeah um no, let me go back to uh, uh, go back to twenty one. He says, "Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed." with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And Mm. after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I Mm. am not another. How my heart yearns within me. And that's exactly what he says at the end of, uh, well, not exactly, but he says to God, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Yes, and, and, and I, you know, he got his wish. He got he his did. words on a book. He certainly did. God heard his prayer, and he was right about his Redeemer standing on the earth. And and again, yeah. I think this, this adds credence to, to the thought that the counsel that we have in the beginning of the book of Job was an earthly encounter. God was here um, engaging the enemy. Because what does Satan say when God asks him, from where have you come? I have come from walking back and forth on the earth and going to and fro on it. That's a good point, Dan. I think um, it's possible. I, I, I don't think he's got a bus pass to get back up into heaven whenever he wants to. Uh, I think that's a good point, yeah. Um, and so God comes down here and deals with him like he did in in uh, the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. God's contest, if you will, not a contest, wrong word, God's uh, engagement with the adversary is down here standing on the earth where Satan is. Satan mm-hmm. got thrown down, and he's down here permanently until he's destroyed. And God, like the Tower of Babel, Wayne, God comes down to do battle, if you will, with Satan with the adversary. Look, I'm not just up there. I threw you down. You're defeated. I'm going to come down here and demonstrate through you my glory. Um, you know, enigmatic as that may be, that God is uh, God is a hands-on God. I mean, that's the the wonder of it. If God is not the God of prostitutes and soldiers and you know the worst degenerate sufferers on the planet if if God is not the lord of 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 these people um if he's not fighting for us like in exodus what does god do where does god fight for israel right there at in the desert at the sea stand still 
and uh, you will see the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. That's in Exodus, right before the Red Sea crossing. Uh, so God is doing battle for us, not only in the heavenly places, but but here on earth. And um, and 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 as we're on the earth, that uh, God reminds us to to pay attention to. His creation. He's given us reminders of his faithfulness all around us. And that's the beauty. And that's what I love about just meditating on creation, um, especially the way light interacts in this world. I love what Dr. Morris says um, on the page. Let's see where I had it marked. Um, yeah, page 47. I just want to read this really quickly because we are we are talking about Job, but we are talking about Dr. Morris as well. It's on page 46 and 47. I want to read this part. It says... Um, The most fundamental form of energy is light. In fact, all the electromagnetic force systems, all types of energy except gravity and the nuclear forces, are essentially different forms of light energy operating at different wavelengths. Even the nuclear forces involve the velocity of light. God's first word when he energized the created cosmos was, let there be light. And then uh, Morris goes on to say, in speaking to Job, God uttered a profoundly modern scientific question when he asked, where is the way where light dwelleth? Now, I wouldn't say that that was a quote-unquote science question. I think it was very poetic, insightful, and beautiful in many other ways. But where is the way where light dwells? And uh, it, get, it gets back to that photograph of my smashed-up car with the, the sunlight reflection on it. It's just reminding me that... That bright spot was was the fingerprint of of the light of the world, who Jesus says that He is, um, and uh, I think that uh, that it's 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 frightening and humbling. You know, uh, how did you know? You think of Paul's conversion um, on the Damascus Road, where God there's a blinding light, and Saul transformed into Paul. He's blinded um, by the light of the world, and so God uses light, and God reminds us with light light is everywhere um that that's that's the foundation of our world we are we are light as 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 uh, uh he says in, i think it's matthew 5 um where jesus calls us the light of the world you are the light of the world a city on a hill cannot be hidden no one lights a lamp and puts puts it under a bushel right let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven matthew 5:16 i believe that is um, and so light is the, the, the foundation of, of the world. There's no astronomy without light. There's no right. James Webb without light. And uh, this whole universe radiates, if you will. Um, and so, so every color you see in the sky or in the flowers and the trees, you know, the people, it's all a reflection of, of light. That's a fascinating aspect of it. You know, the, the secularists say we're made of star stuff. Well, yeah, we have carbon in our bodies, but uh, but it is it's not that we're made of of of, of leftover star stuff, um, but that God used the same material to make stars that He used to make us. At least I think I think yeah, so. Yeah, I think it's it. more the other way around. Right, right. That we just God just uses how creative God can use the same kind of uh, stuff, carbon fourteen, to make stars and to make human beings. That's pretty creative. I can't do right much. and. And then the the longest discourse by God, quoting God anywhere in the Bible, is in the book of Job. Right. And it starts around Job uh, 38, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And it goes through uh, Job 41, 
And uh, it's an awesome uh, tour of creation. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Dan, before we quit, we've got to talk about Behemoth and Leviathan. So, oh, yeah, 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 now, yeah. Now, let me, let me set this up. So, like you were saying, and when God starts to answer Job, and it says he answers him out of the storm. Mm. What, where, where's the storm? I think the storm is in Job. It's, it's the, the, the furious frustration that uh, Job is experiencing. That's just my guess. Anyway, mm-hmm. he, God starts by talking about, do you know about the, the heavens when I created the earth? And he starts and he mentions things in space and the constellations. And he goes from this tour of everything in the universe, from the, from the stars in space to uh, everything on earth that we depend on, the, the water, the, the the things that we grow for food, the mm-hmm. and all the animals. He is in in sovereign control over everything. And I, he, he goes through a tour of different kinds of animals. And he sort of builds up to a climax in you know, talking about the living world, the, the living things. And he, right. And so Behemoth and Leviathan are like the climax of a description of the of living things and so both behemoth and leviathan are described as creatures that men could never tame or capture uh and you wouldn't even they wouldn't even think of doing such a thing um so now creationists have all tended to always think uh very much like henry morris alludes to is that uh, behemoth is probably the largest lo- land animal. It says he eats grass, or he's around land, but it also says he could be in rivers or in a swamp or something. But and it describes his tail in a unique way. It says in uh, in different translations, you'll see it different ways. Like the NIV says, his tail sways like a cedar, uh, d- comparing it to a cedar tree. Um, the Nasby says he bends his tail like a cedar. Uh, the New uh, Revised Standard and the Net Bible and the ESV all say it a little bit different way. It says it makes its tail stiff like a cedar. And um, so there's been a lot of debate about what it's describing there, but creationists have always kind of... Uh, tend to assume it's some kind of sauropod dinosaur because the di- those dinosaurs were plant eaters and they could certainly eat a lot of grass <laughs> and they could uh, they would also hang around the rivers and lakes and such uh, or swamps um, but the point is more that it's very powerful and so God is more powerful because God is more powerful than everything he created Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. Now, we have, and I'm not, you know, I, I, when I say these things, these are just my opinions and I hold them with an open hand and I don't fuss about them. But uh, I, I wanted to make this point. I know you, I know we probably disagree on this, um, but that's okay because it's just a silly opinion of mine. Um, when I took Hebrew and my first, my my year in seminary, when I, I focused mostly on the Hebrew and the, and the um, Greek languages, I had a wonderful Hebrew professor who pointed out the enigma 
of the kind of Hebrew that is in Job. It's some of the it's the hardest Hebrew in the entire Bible. There are some really strange words that uh, for which there is no English equivalent. People just don't know what these things are, and you just mentioned two of them, Wayne. Leviathan and Behemoth. Those mm-hmm. are the Hebrew transliterations. That's how the Hebrew words were pronounced. They just left them there because we don't know what they are. Yeah. Um, and and so this happens too. Also, I wanted to point this out in uh, Job chapter three, when Job finally gets his turn to speak after everything is um, after everything has befallen him. There are there are um, several different words used for. Uh, darkness. Uh, if you go through Job chapter three, and you count the references to to darkness and all of this, um, it's uh, Job's lament. Job cursed the day of his birth, and that he's cursing against the light. It's it's sad and fascinating at the same time. He said, "Let the day perish on which I was born. Let the night, which said a boy may a boy is conceived, let n- no light shine on it." Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of day terrify it. That night, let darkness seize it. And and my professor pointed out that even though you see the word darkness a few times, there's actually different Hebrew words there. And so the writer of Job, if it was Job or somebody else, had a fantastic vocabulary. It was it's very eloquent, um, but a lot of these words we've lost. So Here's where I think you and I differ, but I, this is just an opinion I think I've always had. Uh, well, I know I've always had it, but I don't know if it's true. Um, that you have, instead of two creatures, what I think you have in those two descriptions of Behemoth and Leviathan is actually the physical. I, I think they're. Phys, I think it is a physical animal. I think it's two different names describing the same thing possibly i'm not going to hold on to that i'm not just what i think but why would god mention those things as you say the one reason is because god is sovereign over these majestic magnificent terrifying creatures god is more powerful than they are far more powerful than they are in fact uh they cuddle up to god if you will these (laughs) frightening creatures (laughs) like a cat they sit and you know they just come up and they make soft words with god and um but i also think it's quite possible that that God is addressing Satan in the person of Leviathan, the, the thing of Leviathan and Behemoth. That these are things that the devil, perhaps or Satan, has embodied on Earth. When he walks back and forth on the Earth, he does so like uh, the demons and the pigs. That that Leviathan is the great serpent, the great dragon who is bound to Earth. And so, what God is doing, I think, is in a way, indirectly speaking to Leviathan, reminding Satan, quote-unquote, that God is sovereign even over the devil. Look, the only way this this happened was because I permitted it to show my glory. And so I think, it's just my opinion, I'm not holding, I hold it loosely, I think Behemoth and Leviathan, you could argue, I don't think there's anything in those descriptions that are necessarily contrary to one another. I mean, maybe. But I think it's possible, at least, that Leviathan and Behemoth are two different words for the same creature. I don't know. Well, uh, Dan, I certainly can't speak to the Hebrew, and but so when we can't be sure what these can't are, can't be sure. But, I'm not saying uh, we but are there sure. Are, there is a little bit more information from outside of the Book of Job on Leviathan, 
There are three other verses in the Old Testament that refer yes. to Leviathan. Right. And there Psalm 74 and Psalm 104 and Isaiah 27. And all of those allude to what seems to be an animal in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I think it's also possible that I, I'm not certain if these other passages are are trying to describe the same animal as in Job. So in other words, what if the term Leviathan is not a name for one animal, but more like a class of animals? Like a species. So like we, people today, you know, we use the, the term dinosaur, right? And dinosaur means a lot of different creatures. There's a lot of different dinosaurs. And people will even refer to... If you had something like a plesiosaur, which was in the in the water all the time, that might be called a dinosaur too, even though it's technically not. It's a marine reptile. But so the name might not be the name of one creature. It might be more like of a a big category name. Could be. I, I wouldn't rule. I don't. I, rule I don't that know. But, but that's possible. So anyway. It, behemoth is one kind of animal. Leviathan is different, and Leviathan has some another some more really uh, interesting things about it. It describes it it's what sounds like it's breathing fire, and it says its breath sets coals ablaze mm-hmm. in Job forty one. Mm-hmm. Um, now we don't know of any animal that does this, but Dan, it's not really too far outside of the realm of possibility you know this is not so as implausible as it might sound you know there's a there's a beetle uh called the bombardier beetle that has that mixes together uh hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone in and into a sort of a rapid fire pulse spray that comes out in scalding hot liquid that it can fire in different directions (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to to scare away an attacker, and it's, it's uh, like Lord, that's an overkill for an insect, don't you think? I, I think a fire I read shooting so, insect. I think I read somewhere that there's some of them in Texas. I'm not sure. Oh I'm my not, goodness! So you don't want to run into one of these, Dad. That's but, hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so there's animals that have all sorts of chemical defenses, and uh, there's dinosaurs that had these chambers in their skull that nobody's sure what they were used for. So I I don't think it's, you know, some animals would eat a lot of grass and they're, they could be like ruminants, right? And the ruminants have multiple stomachs. And so they could have grass uh, fermenting there for days or maybe weeks in their stomach. And guess what's going to come out of that? It's going to generate methane. Yeah, yeah. And then if a, if a dinosaur came up and belched around the hot coals, <laughs> guess what would happen? We got a fire starter. So <laughs> I don't think it's impossible. I, I no, would I, sure, I would sure like to know more about that. But you know, you know the, there's uh, there's a lot in the <laughs> uh, the uh, skeletal physiological makeup of some dinosaur skulls. I don't know which ones they are, where there's chambers in the skulls. Uh, of some of the larger dinosaurs, I think maybe it's even in the T-Rex. I don't know. I'm not a paleontologist, but um, there are uh, structures in the skeletal 
uh, in the skulls of, of certain dinosaur species that um, that uh, the scientists don't know what they're for or what they would be for. So maybe there's there's some kind of process by which fire comes out of some of these things. But you've seen some of the scales of some yeah, dinosaurs. And there is another possibility on those skull things is that uh, it could have to do with sound. Could be. Um, there could be uh, some kind of resonance effect that, that made a special kind of call that they made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't know what it was. So right, who right. knows? Well, and then um, the other interesting thing, and getting back to the, the constellations of things, we were talking about Leviathan. Um, there's a, a prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah 27. And it says, it's uh, 27.1. And it says, on that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. A fitting description for what you have in Leviathan uh, uh, in the the book of Job, that uh, nobody can defeat this beast, no human, but God will put an end to it. And um, uh, I've, I've thought, you know, well, this is... This is the best description I've ever read of a dragon, what we would consider a dragon to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go into ancient cultures, and you know your star lore, um, there's a association with a fierce serpentine-like aquatic creature of some kind or another uh, in constellation lore. There's there's a couple of them. There's three of them, at least, that I know of. There's uh, Cetus... The sea creature that has, it's not a whale because sometimes you see Cetus in the constellation or Catus. Uh, this is fascinating. I, I, you, listeners may or may not know this, but uh, that reference to Catos or Cetus, the Cetus monster in the older understanding of it, this thing had a neck, and it was antagonistically uh, drawn. It was going to kill uh, Andromeda, but Perseus came along and uh, killed it. Um, saved, I don't know if he killed it or he just saved the queen from from the beast. Um, but it's interesting when Jesus is talking about Jonah. Remember Jonah? And Jesus identifies himself with Jonah. And he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the sea monster. Something like that. The Greek word that is used in Jesus' words for sea monster wasn't fish. It was Katos, that is the Greek for sea monster, and that is the same Greek word used for the constellation of Cetus, the sea creature, the sea monster, hmm. or whatever. Wow. Fascinating, fascinating. The other, the other diabolical serpentine-like creature that's in the constellation lore is Draco, the dragon. Lots of lots of constellation stories about a dragon who hates mankind, and wrapped around uh, Polaris is a twisted s-like constellation now if when you point it out to somebody at first in the night sky it's very hard to see unless you're in a dark sky and even when you're in a dark sky you're going to know where to look but the constellation of draco looks like a kite on a string and that string just curls and s's around polaris the pole star but that's dragon that's draco the dragon and above the head of draco the dragon is hercules or 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 older constellations call him the kneeler because he's kneeling on one knee 
And he has his other foot poised above the head of the dragon, Draco, with his club raised like he's about to crush the head right. of Leviathan, of, yeah. of Draco. Now, that's about as I, – I don't know how that lore originated. It goes beyond the Greeks. And, I mean, Ptolemy has this, uh, the kneeler and Draco in his Almagest. But he just picks it up like it's been there for centuries. Anyway, I mean, it may go all the way back to Babylon. I'd have to go back and look. But you have this constellation of Draco and Hercules the kneeler just above the head of Draco, trying to about ready to crush the head of Draco. And what do we see in Genesis? We see the, the promise of, of God crushing the head of the serpent. Um, and also here in Isaiah 27, that God will kill the dragon. He will defeat Leviathan, the serpent. Um, very consistent. And then the other one, the other constellation is Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus is the serpent handler. And there's a sub-constellation with Ophiuchus called the Great Serpent. And it's a man, Ophiuchus is the serpent handler, a man wrestling with a great snake. It's So you have, you have the kneeler and Draco, you have Ophiuchus and the Great Snake, and then you have Perseus and Cetus. You have each here heroes wrestling with this nefarious, serpentine-like enemy of mankind. Yeah, and uh, this is like a, a multicultural thing. It, it shows is. Up in multiple stories and ancient stories and legends. Yeah. Yeah, but in the Chinese legends, dragons are good, of course. Uh-huh. But China is <laughs> one of the most, although there is a growing church underground church in China. It has generally been one of the most secular, uh, non-religious in terms of um, anti-Christian people groups in the world in terms of uh, its opposition to the gospel. And now China is, it kills, you you can be killed for your your faith in Christ if you lived in China. Um, And so anyway, I just think it's fascinating. Now, what is that connection? Where do these stories come from? Um, you know, some people will say, and, and Morris brought this up, and I was a little uncomfortable with it. Um, and this would take a whole other podcast to talk about. We should do this podcast one of these days. Um, it's an old uh, idea going back to the mid nineteenth century, maybe earlier than that, called the Gospel in the Stars. Um, the problem with Gospel in the Stars is that. It is trying to create a narrative out of the constellations and saying, and it says that this is what God meant this to be, but it's saying far more than what the Bible tells us about what God meant these stars to be apart from his glory. What The stories that I'm relating to, the constellation stories, can certainly remind you of biblical stories. Isn't that interesting that the Greeks thought this, 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 and this? That's fine. If you yeah. can say, hey, you know, Cetus and Perseus reminds me of Jesus and Satan. Um, uh, the kneeler about ready to crush the head of Draco reminds me of Genesis chapter 3 and what God will do ultimately to the devil. Without saying that's what God made those things to be. In other words, we're not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that that you can get the gospel message out of the stars if you know nothing about the Bible. Right. The yes. heavens are declaring the glory of God in a general revelation sense, 
But nobody can look up at the stars without the inspiration and saving knowledge of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. No one can just look up at the stars and and see their need of redemption and know all about Jesus. The stars aren't going to tell you any of that. Right. We we need the special revelation of right. a written right. revelation to, exactly. to be clear. Right, right. And But once you have... God's unique revelation and and Jesus is preeminent and you understand sin and, and your need of salvation and what Christ has done for us. And once you understand the Gospels, then I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with going back and looking at nature for for ideas about the Gospel. If you're trying to share the Gospel with somebody, you can say, look, this this is like this or this reminds me of this. I mean, people use movies all the time to, to uh, make analogies with Gospel truths. We use things from everyday lives. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong with looking up into the stars and thinking of the star lore and saying, you know, this story kind of reminds me of a story in the Bible. But I'm stopping short and saying, you know, God meant that constellation to be that story in the Bible. He, We don't have that information. We don't know that. But you're safe if you say, hey, you know, this reminds me of something. Right. Um, yeah. I have several mnemonic devices, mnemonic devices that I use out of constellation stories to talk about the scripture. But I'm not doing astrology. I'm not doing gospel in the stars. I'm all, I say all up front all the time. I said, this just reminds me of the story of Job. This reminds me of the story of Jesus, or this reminds me of Satan and his defeat. Right. You know, that's all I'm doing. Uh, but the gospel of the stars goes one step further and it says, no, 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 no. God wrote the zodiac sign as in- intending it to be a gospel narrative. Um, that's not what we're saying that's not what scripture that's saying not what the bible is saying you get the psalm 19 doesn't say the heavens declare the gospel uh the heavens declare uh the calvary the heavens declare the resurrection the heavens declare in a general sense the glory of god that we can divine and understand certain attributes of god by looking at the, the creation but we don't get the gospel narrative out of creation itself without the aid of the holy spirit enlightening us uh, about our sin and our need of salvation. So, but once you are a Christian, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking parables from nature and relating gospel messages to things in creation. I think that's what creation is supposed to do: uh, is to be a resource for Christians to use to say, you know, this reminds me. You know, Jesus did this all the time. Look at the birds of the air or the seeds. Look at the the mustard sure. seed. You know, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with it. But I just I had to make that distinction because Morris does mention. Uh, gospel in the stars in passing, and I think he may have even been persuaded by its argument. It's it's. Uh, I don't recommend it. If you look it up, I would not get too excited or get into it too much because it's just it says more than the Bible does about what the constellations are. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and there's some things that Morris um, believed that I wouldn't go along with. Uh, for one thing, I think he had an over-reliance on the King James. And he, you would never see him compare multiple translations much. And uh, that's an issue sometimes, I think. And uh, <clears throat> he had the idea that before the flood, there was the earth had a different kind of water cycle where you, it was sort of an underground cycle instead of going through the atmosphere. Because he he believed there was no rain before the flood at all, and so he th- thought there was this kind of cavern, cave system that went around the planet, 
all over the earth and it tra transported water around. Then the water came up through the ground and groundwater to uh, water the ground. And uh, other creationists in the sciences never really accepted that idea much. But, you know, Henry Morris had a lot of wonderful points about the Bible and relating things to history and, and relating to, to science where where it's appropriate. You know, um, so I think there's a lot there's a lot people can learn from Henry Morris's books, and I was very happy with his book on Job. I got a lot out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I didn't really realize before I read his book the commonality between Job's friends that they all pretty much got stuck on this idea that because Job had suffered, he must have sinned. Mm. They got stuck on that idea. And uh, Job steadfastly said, no, that's not it. Right, right. And Job was right, and they were wrong. Well, and that, that, that is very practical in terms of application in our own life today. Um, I mean, there's there are strains of what people say are Christianity, but uh, prosperity gospel uh, thinking is uh, if you do this, then God will do this. If you, if if you're poor and depressed or sad or under attack, then you must have done something wrong. But uh, if you're prosperous and you have money, then God is blessing you. And uh, you know, if you just continue to obey God, God will continue to prosper you, um, which is not the case at all. Um, you know, because as as uh, people know that uh, there are a lot of people that are not Christians that live prosperous, healthy lives. And then there are people that are Christians who live in destitute poverty and suffering. And, and so uh, it cannot possibly be uh, that God's goodness is based upon our merits. Um, the very fact that Jesus's death had to happen uh, says quite a bit about our merit. And so did Isaiah. You know, our good deeds, our good works are like filthy rags, um, in terms of in, in God's sight. And then there are those people in Matthew 7 who stand before Jesus and say, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And God and Jesus says to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So th these people were relying on their own good works, thinking that God was going to look favorably upon them, that God owed them favor because they were doing wonderful works. They thought they were in Jesus's name but they weren't they weren't at all they were uh, relying on their own works in terms of trying to please Jesus but it is only by the merits it is only by the obedience it is only by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, that that anybody is saved and it's not what we do it is what God has already done for us in Christ and um, and we learn a long slow obedience through sanctification nobody obeys God perfectly but as we grow in Christ uh, we we learn um, to 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 obey him more, but 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 our obedience, our works, uh, our deeds are 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 not going to justify us before holy God. Only Jesus has done that, and I think that's an, a very important lesson that we take from the Book of Job. Um, and, you know, too, Wayne. Let's be honest. Yeah, I, we've all been yeah. we've all been Job's friends. And yeah. we've all had Job's friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So well, it hits home for Dan, all of you us. Know, I think that uh, we need to um, 
So, so Job went through a lot of suffering, but there was there's a, there is some limit of what we can handle. Yes, and I think you know God knows our limits, right? And uh, even though, in a sense, it was an unfair thing or an un, un uh, I'm not sure what to say. It was it wasn't something Job had really done something for. But, but it, it was a test of Job in ways, and it seems like uh, God made it up to Job in the end. He gave Job uh, an, another round of 10 more kids and lived 140 more years. <laughs> and got, and, uh, got uh, I think, double or triple the camels and sheep back, too. Uh, yes, and he had all these animals. He was wealthy again, and mm-hmm. he, and so... The Lord was good to him in the end. Uh, it does have a good ending. It's a story yes. with a very good ending. But let us be clear that God didn't reward Job for something that Job did. That from the beginning, God declared Job righteous, not because of what Job did, but because of God's declaration of Job's righteousness. So God didn't owe Job sheep and camels and a new family. He, that was not owed to Job. Yes. It is just the mercy of God that he did that and his grace and mercy and his love and his care for us that he restored Job's possessions and his family. Yeah, and I think you could go back and relate and talk about the faith of Abraham. Why Abraham was considered righteous not because he was perfect because but because he believed God. Right, right. Well, and, uh, you could say the same thing of Job, I think. Yeah. Well, Wayne, um, we've been going on. We're approaching the two-hour mark. This is going to be a lot of editing for me, but uh, that's okay. That's what I like to do. And uh, I really think it's been a fantastic insight, and we just barely scratched the surface. And uh, I think that uh, it. I hope it's been edifying for our listeners. Uh, I encourage you, if you haven't, to check out C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain and A Grief Observed. Two different ways of looking at uh, a grief and suffering. And then, of course, read the book of Job if you haven't. It's now's a great time. And if you need a, a nice, helpful, friendly, in, encouraging commentary on the book of Job, uh, Dr. Morris's book, The Remarkable Record of Job, is a great little book. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything in it. I think there's plenty of things in it that uh, that you would find encouraging and insightful. Um, and uh, you know, as 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 I said at the beginning of the broadcast, if you we we talked about uh, what's the answer to Job's trials? Well, it seems to be God's majesty in creation, knowing Christ, and knowing Christ also by what He created and through what He created. Um, he could have put it on us put us on an airless moon with no atmosphere. And uh, not giving us flowers and trees and bunny rabbits and giant deer, um, you know, all of these things that, that fill heaven and earth. That God's glory, as Isaiah said, the whole earth and the whole universe is filled with the glory of God. And so he, yes. he wants us to meditate on creation uh, with an understanding to who he is. And I think uh, when we see Jesus um, through the creation, I mean, he's not in the creation like he's not we're not talking about pantheism where he's like in trees or in flowers or something like that we're talking about god being sovereign and majestic over and through creation that he sustains it all by the word of his power um and uh and i think there's whether it's flowers or stars or a forest or 
waterfalls or mountains or deserts, wherever the case may be, just meditating on creation really does seem to be the answer. I mean, it's not a fully complete answer to the questions that we have necessarily, but it is the answer that uh, our Creator and our Lord gives us. Think on these things. Meditate on the creation. Meditate on what I've made. Romans 1, God's invisible attributes are clearly displayed through what has been made. And uh, so that's it's good balm for the soul when you're struggling to contemplate uh, creation. That's God's answer. Amen. All right, Mr. Spencer. It has been a... Uh, whirl of a tour we gave it a whirl and then some and uh leave us a comment if you'd like get a hold of us uh through the email uh, psalm1968 at gmail.com and uh, we will uh, we try to answer every email we get i try to and we appreciate the feedback we hope you've uh, enjoyed this podcast and uh um and just be faithful be trust in the lord's faithfulness as you go through whatever you're going through. Uh, he he will be faithful to see you through it, even though we don't have all the answers to to what's going on. That's right. Closing thoughts, Mister Spencer. Um, we can all learn from the Book of Job, and uh, God is God is bigger than everything in this world, Dan. Yes, 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 He is, and He was abundantly merciful to me. I will conclude this car story with a happy ending. Um, I I knew God was going to do something. I didn't know what, um, but my insurance took care of me. And um, just today, I was able to. It's not a new car. It's it's a used car. I was very sensible with it, but God has provided a very reliable um, and very um, well taken care of car that only had one owner. Um, I really like the car. It's got over a hundred thousand miles on it, but it was um, it was affordable, and um, I was it, it's it, it's a better car than the car that would hit the deer. So I'll just say that it, you know, and I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it or anything like that, um, but it resolved better than I could have expected. So praise the Lord for that. There is an end to to the trials and struggles that we have. Um, and it's not prosperity. I'm not talking about, you know, God giving me things. It's not about stuff, right? It's just about God's love and his mercy and his care for us. I think that's finally what, what it comes down to and his majesty and his grace and his glory. It's all about him. It's all about him. So thank you all to those who, who did know about this and were praying for me. Um, it, it, things did work out as good as they could have. Um, my insurance company was fabulous. Everybody that was involved in this was so nice and kind, even my friends in Colorado. Um, God was really in it from beginning to end, and uh, I really um, I really learned some valuable lessons, and it was a nice um, little story to have for this podcast, and I hope it uh, can be an encouragement to, to all of you as well. So, Wayne, we will see you right here next time on... Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Thank mm-hmm. you.